Today on The Matt Wall Show, we'll talk about what I think is the biggest problem with my generation, and that is how so many of us are unwilling to deal with the reality of a given situation, and instead we're always focused on, well, it shouldn't be this way, this is how it should be, um, refusing to focus and deal with the actual reality. So we'll talk about that. Also, we'll talk about why more people should be uh, moving to find job opportunities. And finally, Democrats continue to let their pro-abortion radicalism shine through in disgusting and hideous and evil ways. We'll discuss that as well today on The Matt Wall Show. Welcome to The Matt Wall Show, everybody. Remember to subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. So uh, subscribe on iTunes to get the whole, the whole show, or you can become a premium member of the Daily Wire. Um, I hope you're all surviving the polar vortex, as it's being dramatically called. It's not that bad where I live. We're maybe at about 25 degrees or so, so pretty balmy temperatures. We did get a bit of snow, though, so uh, you know I enjoyed taking the kids out last night to go sledding. And of course, when I say I take them out to go sledding, what I mean is that um, I'm the one who does most of the sledding while they're making snow angels or whatever they're doing. Uh, I'm on the, you know, I'm hitting the slopes with that, with the little plastic green saucer thing. So it was a lot of fun. Um, yesterday, I wrote about the student loan crisis, and I talked about this on the show uh, a couple days ago, I think. And the case that I made is that, uh, just to review very, very briefly to get into what I want to talk about, what I said, and I've, I've made this case many times, is that on an individual level, the way to deal with the absurd cost of, of college is to, uh, or one way to deal with it, is to maybe not go to college. Uh, you know, often when you notice that something is absurdly crazy expensive, um, and you're thinking about w- what are ways to deal with how expensive this thing is, well, one of the things that you could do is just not buy that thing, Right. Now, I'm not defending colleges that charge so much. I've been accused of that. Of course, I'm not. I agree with everyone who says that it's ridiculous that universities charge so much. They require students to mortgage the next 15 years of their life just for the privilege of attending classes. Uh, I agree that it's immoral to, to lend tens of thousands of dollars to a person who has no job and no assets and no wealth, a net worth of zero, and no immediate prospects of, of making an income of any kind. What's worse, many of these kids are, are purchasing this massively expensive thing without having any idea as to how they might actually use it or if they might use it. So it's like selling a Cessna, you know, a plane to a broke 17-year-old who doesn't even have a pilot's license and really has no, uh, no immediate plans of even getting one. So the whole system is ludicrous and unethical and uh, in too many ways to count. But what frustrates me is that when we have this conversation, what frustrates me is it's not just the victim mentality of the college grads who did, after all, sign on the dotted line and agree to the terms of the loan, even if it is a, 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 you know, a, a loan that they never should have taken out in the first place. So it's, it's, it's not just the victim mentality. That's, that, that's one thing that annoys me. But... Um, Even more so, it's the way that this conversation, like so many other conversations in our culture today, avoids the one clear solution. Most people are just unwilling to consider or take seriously the one single thing that could actually address and finally solve the student loan crisis. Everyone wants to talk about policies. They want to talk about regulations and laws and everything. None of that's going to do anything. In fact, it would probably make the the problem much worse. The real answer 
is obvious. It's what I already said. It's for fewer people to go to college. Universities have no incentive to drive down the costs of their tuition if everybody's going to keep going regardless. I made, I made the analogy in my piece yesterday where I talked about imagine that you're a denim company um, selling jeans and imagine that you've discovered that everybody will buy your jeans no matter how much they cost. You, you raise the cost to 90 bucks, everyone's still buying them. In fact, more people are buying them. You raise them to 300, people are still buying them. So, so what are you going to do? Are you going to drop down the prices back down to 30 bucks just to be nice? Or are you going to keep raising those prices uh, because people are willing to buy it? Well, if, if maybe if you're a really nice person or a terrible businessman or both, you'll drop the prices just for the heck of it, just to be nice. But if you are focused on the bottom line, then, you know, you're going to have, if people want to mortgage their homes to buy a pair of pants, then you're going to be perfectly willing and happy to have, to, to have them do that uh, if it puts money in your pockets. And that's how colleges operate. So if you're thinking that colleges are run by really nice, generous, um, you know, philanthropists, they're not. They're run by business people who want to make money. That's what it's about. College will become less expensive the moment that a preponderance of potential students start showing a willingness to not go. It starts showing a little bit of prudence and discernment. Uh, I'm not saying that everybody should avoid college because the prices are so high. If you want to be an architect or an engineer or, or uh, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or something, then, then obviously in those cases, the cost of college, even as high as it is, might be worth it. But if you know that you want to get into a line of, a wor- line of work where the degree isn't necessary, then obviously you shouldn't go. And most importantly, if you have no idea what you want to do with your life, um, if you have no clue what your skills are, your passions, your interests if you have no real five or 10 year plan at all at this point, then the last thing you should do is, 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 is sign up for this massive loan to buy a thing that you aren't even sure if you're going to use. And even if you do use it, you don't at this point know how you're going to use it. In no other situation would we ever recommend that somebody buys something for $100,000 without knowing whether or not they're even going to use it. We would never say, yeah, you know what, just go buy the thing for six figures, and then, uh, you know, at some point you'll figure out what to do with it. We would never say that in any other situation we should stop saying with a college education, it is absurd. So that's my whole case. I think it's a, it's a really reasonable case. It's just if you know that you're going to use this education and that ultimately it will pay off financially, then go do it. If you don't know that yet, then don't go to college right now. It doesn't mean never go. It just means don't go right now until you figured it out. Really reasonable point of view, I think. And this is a, I don't know why I just did this with it. I'm doing the Donald Trump. I'm, I'm developing Donald Trump's um, hand mannerisms for some reason. I think it's a really reasonable point of view. Just don't buy an expensive thing unless you know how you're going to use it. That's my whole case. Very logical, I think. But I've heard from a lot of people who said, well, that's not fair. You know, college shouldn't be this expensive in the first place. Yeah, I know that I'll drive myself into debt uh, going to college, and it's true that I don't know what I want to do with my life and all of that, but um, I should be able to go to college. I should be able to. Uh, college should be affordable for me. I, I, I should be able to go just for the experience and just for the education, even if I'm never going to use it in any practical way at all. Uh, that's how it should be. This is what I'm hearing from people. And 
okay, yeah, maybe it should be, but it's not, though. See, that's, it should be, okay, fine, but it's not. It's not. That's not what it is. Should be, fine. Not, though. So, when you say should, you're talking about a world that doesn't exist. You're, you're talking about a fantasy world. You may as well say, um, you know what, there should be um, uh, unicorns, and the government should assign flying unicorns to every person. Every person should get their own flying unicorns. And the unicorn should be able to make pancakes in the morning. So I should be able to get up in the morning and, the, and there's a unicorn making me pancakes. Uh, that's how it should be. And you know what? Maybe it should be that way. I think that would be great. But it's not that way, though. So don't live your life as though you have a flying unicorn that makes pancakes because you don't. And I know you might say, well, you know, having affordable college is a more practical should than flying unicorns, fine. But the point is, they are similar right now in the fact that they are both situations that don't exist. Maybe one is achievable down the line, but that's not the situation right now for you. So I heard the same kind of thing yesterday when I was, um, and I don't remember exactly how this came up, but on Twitter we were talking about the whole college thing and the challenges that young people face and I was making my case for, hey, you know, go get a job, uh, work, live on your own for a bit if you don't know what you want to do with your life, rather than, uh, you know, rather than signing up for this loan and go pay, and going to pay to do this really expensive thing. Instead, you could spend that time of discernment working a job and making money and living on your own, gaining life experience, actual valuable life experience. Because the, va the life experience you get in college, I know you say, well, college is an experience. But the life experience you get there is basically, I know it's easy for me to say because I didn't go, but it, is, it strikes me that it's basically worthless. It's not, you know, the day-to-day the, the -day experience of being in college, you're not ever going to have anything like that again. Which means, fine, you'll have great memories, great, but it's not going to give you skills and, and habits that will do you much good anywhere else in life. Um... Now, you live in an apartment by yourself, you learn to pay the bills, you learn to deal with landlords and everything. Well, that's, those are skills and talents that you're going to take with you for your whole life. But whatever skill you develop with living with a roommate in a dorm, uh, partying and stuff, I mean, I, yeah, I, I know it's fun and memories are great, but I don't know if you should drive yourself into six figures of debt to make memories at this point of your life or ever, really, actually. Um, so rather than that, you could go and get the life experience and, and, and make some money and uh, develop skills, build your resume while you're discerning and figuring out what you want to do. And so I, you know, I was saying that, and uh, a bunch of people said to me, well, well I, you know, I'd love to, but there, there are no jobs around where I live. There are no jobs. Or, uh, living expenses are very high. You know, what am I supposed to do? There's, there's nowhere to work, and I can't, I can't live anywhere because it, it's, it's so expensive. I'm living at my parents' house. And so I said, well, um, then move. Uh, move to a different place. It's a big country. There are lots of places that you could potentially live. So just move to a place with low costs of living and more job opportunities. Those places do exist. There are a lot of places like that. And it's a really exciting thing because America is like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's millions of square miles of land. And you could go anywhere. You can go literally anywhere you want. 
so go somewhere else. But once again, I got the same kind of response. People saying, well, that's not fair. That's, 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 that's not how it should be. It shouldn't be that way. I shouldn't have to move. I shouldn't have to move. I should be able to stay where I am. I've got my family here my whole life and my friends. And this is where I grew up. And, and this is you know the town that I live in. I, I shouldn't have to move. I want to be close to family. I should be able to be close to family. People should be able to stay where they are. That's the way it should be. There's a problem in society when everyone has to leave and disperse and families are broken up. This isn't how society should be. I agree. But that is how society is. Okay, it shouldn't be, but it is. So that's all. It just is. This is something I notice with millennials a lot, okay? And, I, and I'm not generally a millennial basher. Uh, I am a millennial myself. And as I've said many times in the past, our generation did get screwed by previous generations. There, there's no question about that. Uh, the baby boomers drove this country into bankruptcy. They ruined most of our institutions. They left the institution of marriage and tatters. And look what they did with government and media and academia and everything. Um, uh, the baby boomer generation is a generation of, generally speaking, not for all of them, but generally speaking, it's a generation of selfishness and financial irresponsibility. Um, and, uh, and they are, in general, leaving the country in worse shape than they found it, which is the ultimate indictment on any generation. It's, you know, how did it look when you got it, and how does it look now? And the baby boomers inherited a pretty good situation, a pretty prosperous situation, and that's not the situation they're leaving behind. So um, they have little room to criticize anyone, and I'll be the first to say that. But that said, there are some legitimate criticisms of the millennial generation, and this is one of them. The refusal to deal with reality, a refusal to acknowledge how things are, this insistence always on saying, but it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, college shouldn't be so expensive, living shouldn't be so expensive, I shouldn't have to move, it shouldn't be this way. But it is. And, and you do have to deal with it. And that's just all there is to it, I'm afraid, right now. You know, people don't like my plan for dealing with student debt um, because they say that we need policy changes and everything else. Okay, even if I agreed with that, and I don't really, but even if I did, that doesn't change the immediate situation. And I'd rather talk about what can a person do right now in this exact moment, an individual person who is looking at the situation as it currently stands, what can they do? Uh, I mean, should they be lobbying Congress? Is that, is that the way that they, that they should personally be dealing with the situation? No. You, you, so that's, that's the thing with a lot of people in my generation I've noticed is just an absolute refusal to simply deal with things and cope with things as they are. And so you end up with a lot of millennials who just stay at home or they stay in their hometown, they whine and they complain and they just tread water and run in place and do nothing while whining about how things should be. Well, that's not how you change things. And if you notice that the, that the environment and the you know, society and everything around you, it, it's not how you want it to be, well, you can't immediately do anything about that, but, but, but you can do something immediately about your own situation. That's the thing that you can immediately grab a hold of and change, so do that. 
And then there's just this general resistance people in my generation have often to moving um, to a different town to pursue opportunities. I don't understand. I can't wrap my head around that. Do you expect the opportunities to just come to you? What's, what's the plan exactly? To sit there pouting until the situation improves? Well, it's never going to improve. So you're just going to be pouting for the rest of your life. And you're going to be a loser who does nothing and accomplishes nothing in life if that's how you go about it. There are no jobs. Okay, yes, there are. But you just have to go somewhere else for them. I do not understand a 20-year-old or 22-year-old person saying there are no jobs anywhere. There are so many jobs everywhere, but you, you just have to be willing to go more than like 20 miles from where you grew up. That's all. Uh, I mean, go work in North Dakota as a, a, go work on an oil rig in North Dakota, make six figures and live in a place where the living expenses are almost like non-existent and just bank money. You know what? I wish I had done that. I, you know what I wish I had done when I was 18? I wish I had gone to North Dakota and worked for seven years on an oil rig and just save tons of money. And, and, and that's, you know what? That's what I think. If you're 18 years old, go do that. Go work on an oil rig for about five, six, seven years. And then, and then do what you want. You go to college. You can pay for it all on your own. You can pay for it out of pocket. Or, or something. I mean, there, there are so many different things you can do. That, uh, and, and especially when you're young and you don't have kids. Now, when you have kids and you have a family, uh, the situation becomes a little bit more complicated. Although, even then. Look, I've moved uh, since I was since I, mo I moved out of the house when I was 20. And... Um, Including that move, I've moved five times in the last uh, 12 years. And three of those times is when I had kids. It's a lot harder when you have kids. And I've changed jobs. I've changed careers. I, I mean, I, you know, I, when I, it was only six, seven months after we had our twins. And we were living eight, eight hours away from family. And we were living in Kentucky, eight hours away from family. We were completely, you know, alone. Um, and, uh, and, we had just had kid, twins, so we now all of a sudden we went from a two-person family to a four-person family. And it was only six, seven months after that when we made the decision, which was probably an insane decision, but I was going to um, leave full-time employment and I was going to go full-time on, on blogging. I had just started my website and I was just writing. I was just writing. And uh, we decided I was going to do that full-time. And it was a crazy risk to take. It could have been backfired horribly and, and completely ruined us. Um, but it was a risk we felt like we should make. And, and, and in the end, it, it paid off. But so the point is, I'm not just saying this. You know, I've been through that myself. I've taken the risks. I've had, you know, and I know that moving is hard. The first couple of times I moved, I had no money. And so, you know, you're, you've got very little money. It's like you can't even rent a U-Haul hardly. When you get to a place, you've got, you've got to put a down payment on an apartment and all that. And so if you've saved money, then maybe you have enough to get the U-Haul and to put the down payment, but then you're going to have no money. And so you better be able to get a job. And then, you know, you're, you're kind of climbing out of that hole. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do, but it can be done. And so sometimes you have to do difficult things. And my point is, when you have no kids and no family, it's like you could do anything. You could go anywhere. And worst case scenario, if the, you know, the worst thing happens and, you're, and you end up on the street, 
Like you have no money. And even that is you could deal with it. There are people who have lived in their cars until they were able to get enough money to get an apartment. I'm not saying you want to end up with that, but I'm saying when you have no kids, there's really, it's, it, it, that is not disastrous. With kids, that's disastrous. Without them, so what? Okay, it's, so that's what you do. Or you, or you couch surf or, you know, whatever. You stay in a motel or something. I mean, that's what I, the, the, the message I'm always trying to communicate to people, especially younger people without kids. Like, you can go and do anything. You, I know that there's this, there's this path that's been set out for you and that everyone, you know, there's this idea of what you're supposed to do, A, B, C, you know, follow along the points on the path because that's what everyone else does but you don't really have to follow that path. And in fact, that path for most people is not the best one. There are better ways to go about it. There are smarter ways. For instance, you don't have to, to even if you decide you want to go to college, that doesn't have to involve massive debt. If you're willing to just wait for a few years and, like I said, work somewhere for a while, and if you're willing to do a job that's a little bit more hands-on, it's not a cushy office job, uh, it might be a, you know, a little bit more difficult, physically challenging, um, it's not a job that you can you know, brag about on social media maybe, um, it, won't be, you know, it won't be the nice job that maybe some of your friends are able to get maybe out of college, although a lot of them won't be getting nice jobs either. So, but if you're willing to do that for a few years, um, and then at that point, if you decide you want to go to college, well, then you don't even have to send yourself into debt because you'll have the money to pay for it. All right. Um, so that's a, my life advice. Now let's, we're talking about life advice. Let's go to the culture of death. Um, New York, of course, passed that law last week, outlawing, or I should say allowing, I wish it was outlawing, allowing abortion up until birth. We talked about that. But now this has kind of got the ball rolling for the Democrats. So Democrats in Virginia have proposed a bill that would allow abortions up until seconds before birth. Virginia delegate Kathy Tron presented the bill in a subcommittee this week, and she was questioned by Chairman Todd Gilbert about what this law actually involves. And it's pretty chilling to listen to. So, so here, here's how that questioning went. So how late in the third trimester would you be able to, to do that? You know, it's very unfortunate that our physicians, uh, witnesses, were not able to attend today to speak specifically. No, no I'm talking that. about your bill. How, yeah, how, late, I mean, how late in the third trimester could a, a physician perform an abortion if he indicated it would impair the mental health of the, of the woman? Or physical health. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm um, talking about the mental health. So, I mean, through the third trimester. The third trimester goes all the way up to 40 weeks. Okay. But to the end of the third trimester. Yep. I don't think we have a limit in the bill. So, um, where it's obvious that a woman is about to give birth, she has physical signs of, um, that she is about to give a birth, would that still be a point at which she could request an abortion if she was so certified? She's dilating. Uh, Mr. Chairman, that would be a, you know, a decision that the doctor, the physician, and the woman would I understand make that. that. I'm asking point. if your bill allows that. My bill would allow that, yes. So very disturbing. Um, a baby that is mere minutes away from birth 
a fully healthy, viable baby can be aborted at the behest of a fully physically healthy woman moments before birth um, if she feels that her mental health would be harmed by the birth of her child. Meanwhile, you have Democrats in Rhode Island who are working on a similar bill, except theirs uh, would theirs would allow abortion up until birth, so same as New York, same as Virginia. But it would also repeal the partial birth abortion ban in the state. Okay, now partial birth abortion is is banned on the federal level. So even by overturning the ban in Rhode Island, that doesn't mean that they're actually going to be able to perform partial birth abortions legally. But this just shows you the fact that the Democrats want to do that tells you everything you need to know about them. Do you know what you know what partial birth abortion is? Okay, I'll tell you what it entails. And this is a graphic, so if you have kids in the car, maybe, or if you have kids, you know, while you're watching this or listening to this, maybe shut it off. But a partial birth abortion is when a fully viable, fully healthy baby who could survive outside of the womb, who has reached term. Um, is delivered alive and then moments before fully emerging from the birth canal with, with half of its body hanging out of the birth canal, the baby's head is held inside the woman's body and then his brain is sucked out of his head. That's what a partial birth abortion is. Obviously, no difference at all, none between just delivering the baby and, and killing him. Uh, this is infanticide. And y- y- they're trying to get around the infanticide by just keeping one part of the body inside of the mother. Again, that's banned on the federal level. And um, now Democrats, I'm sure they would love to overturn that federal ban. They don't, they don't, they can't right now. But this is where Democrats are. These are bloodthirsty, evil lunatics who support this kind of thing. And it just goes to show the Democrat Party is becoming more and more radical, especially on the abortion issue. Um, They are, you know, they're not moderating their stance or going to the middle or anything like that. Which is why, in opposing them, we have to be just as radical on the other end of the spectrum, on the good end of the spectrum, on the spectrum, on the, on the, on the life preserving and loving and protecting end of the spectrum. Because Democrats are saying, well, we want all abortions, partial birth, everything, abortion for any reason at any point up to, and even after birth, because partial birth, I mean, that's the, the birth has happened at that point. Um, So that is really an afterbirth abortion. So that's what Democrats are saying. That's what liberals want. And our response has to be no abortions, none for anyone ever, for any reason. Life begins at conception. Because if you try to moderate, you try to meet them in the middle, they clearly are not willing to do that. And all they're going to do is they're going to keep dragging you further and further and closer to them. They're going to keep saying, okay, yeah, sure, let's, let's meet in the middle. Just come a little bit closer to us. Yeah, come a little bit, come, come closer. Yeah, no, 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 no. Just walk a little bit further our way. We'll, we'll meet you. Just keep coming. But they never do. And that's how, the, that's how the left has dragged the entire culture further left. Because the left keeps going more and more left 
while kind of beckoning everyone else, come on, you know, come meet us. Let's, 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 uh, you know, let's, let's compromise. Let's find a middle ground. But they keep going left so that the middle ground, the middle ground is always shifting. I realize I'm saying left, but I'm pointing right, but you know. One other thing about this, I was thinking about it, is, um, you know, Kermit Gosnell is, uh, is in prison for the rest of his life for killing babies after they were born and for, you know, other things as well, putting, putting women's, you know, he killed at least one woman and uh, put uh, you know, unsanitary, disgusting conditions of his, of his clinic and all that. But the main thing is that he killed babies, uh, probably hundreds of babies after they were already born. But as I said, there's no difference between that. There's no biological, no moral, no physical difference between that and killing a baby moments before birth or even during the process of birth. So really, I guess we should just let Kermit Gosnell out of prison. I, I think we, we shouldn't allow Democrats to kind of to, to, to kind of draw this distinction between Kermit Gosnell and so-called regular good abortionists. There is, no, there is no distinction. Kermit Gosnell is just an abortionist. He's no different from the rest of them. They're all the same. Now, I would love for all of them to be in prison. I think that's where they all belong. But I don't think we should let the left draw these distinctions and say, no, not, not Kermit Gosnell. No, he's, he's totally di- He's not different. So really, if the laws were consistent, then Kermit Gosnell, he should have maybe been fined for... Um, you know, disposing of medical waste inappropriately. So maybe give them a $500 fine or something like that. Uh, But other than that, it's all the same. There's no difference. All right, finally, we'll go to the inbox, check some of your messages and emails. Remember, uh, mattwalshow at gmail.com, mattwalshow at gmail.com. If you have a question, comment, concern, hate mail, anything that that you have. Um, this is from Ellie. She says, hi, Matt. I'm a homeschooled ninth grade student, and I am involved in a wonderful Christian co-op that I attend once a week. Since first grade, I've been in a cycle of learning about ancient history for one year, medieval history the next year, American history the third year. The cycle still repeats to this day, and I really enjoy it. And uh, I feel that I'm getting a really t- thorough education. I've heard from my friends and a few of my family members that the ancient and medieval courses are pointless, and learning about Charlemagne is a waste of time. How would you defend the study of ancient and medieval history, if at all? Thank you for the show. I really enjoy it. Well, hi, Ellie. First of all, it's awesome that you enjoy learning about history. That's a great passion and interest to have, and uh, I think you should cultivate it. I have the same interest myself. Uh, Being a history nerd is one of the coolest things you can be. Now, I'm not quite a history nerd. You might might be. See, I aspire to be a history nerd. That's kind of, that's a level up. There There are basically three levels. There's a history enthusiast. And then you graduate to history nerd, and then you become history buff. So I'm still on the enthusiast level, hoping to make it to nerd and then eventually buff. That's where I'm going. You may be further along than I am already, um, but I think it's a great thing. As far as learning about the Middle Ages, um, that's one of the most important and interesting times to learn about. Uh, there's this, a lot of people think that nothing happened and it's sort of this time in history where humanity was at a standstill and so we could just cut that out and forget about it but um that's not the case at all i mean charlemagne is considered the father of europe there are a lot of other really interesting important fascinating people 
Thomas Aquinas and, um, and uh, William Wallace and Joan of Arc and Da Vinci, who was kind of more Renaissance, but still, I think, Leif Erikson, who's you know, a Viking, made it to North America 500 years before Columbus. Um, and then think about all the innovations that came out of the Middle Ages, um, like uh, one of the most important ever, the printing press and the mechanical clock and gunpowder and eyeglasses. So the next time someone tells you that it's a waste of time to learn about history and to learn about the Middle Ages, then ask them if they think the printing press was a waste of time. Because if it wasn't, then obviously it's not a waste of time to learn about it. So I would encourage you to keep doing that. Uh, this is from John. He says, hey, Matt, I really like your show, especially the ones you, where you talk about theological and philosophical ideas. I was wondering about what you think the stance of a Christian should be towards meditation because it is inspired by and is advocated by non-Christian, um, new agey, and even anti-Christian, like Sam Harris, thought, should Christians avoid meditation? Thanks in advance. I think it depends on the purpose and method of meditation. I think meditation that is meant to sort of empty the mind completely um, is, is problematic. Uh, as Christians, we know that our minds should be focused on God all the time, not nothingness, not emptiness. Um, but contemplative prayer might be confused with meditation, and it's similar in some ways. Um, but in that, and it could look like a very similar thing, in that it's a very quiet, very still sort of thing. But in that case, you're centering your thoughts and your mind on God. So as I understand it with the new agey type of meditation, it's all about just kind of obliterating the ego and thinking about nothing and just sort of being there, which I think is a problem. But in this case, in contemplative prayer, it's about, yeah, you're, you're, you're not thinking about yourself anymore. You're trying to get your thoughts away from yourself and focus them up on God. Rather than just dispersing your thoughts into the ether, you're trying to target them up and focus on something good and holy. So I think that's a good thing. Uh, from Luisa, it says, Hi there, Matt. You should be proud to know that a 36-year-old Spaniard thinks your show is pretty great. Even though I don't live in America, almost everything you talk about ends up being relevant to me. The problems we face as conservatives in Europe are not that different from the ones that you face in America. For example, the Spanish government has been pretending we don't have an immigration problem for years now. The poisonous feminist ideology has also led to the destruction of the nuclear family in this country and consequently to a dramatic increase in crime rates and people living off welfare benefits. Moral relativism has taken the place of Christian values that are now dismissed as old-fashioned and even oppressive. The pro-choice and the LGBTQYWTF agendas are inseparable and indistinguishable from the liberal lefts, and they have completely reshaped our society and even infiltrated our public school system. Politicians here have been just as baffled about the fact that the so-called far right is gaining foothold everywhere in Europe as they were about Trump winning the elections in America. Still, it seems that Europe hasn't had enough of the leftist nonsense just yet. That is just to name a few. Uh, anyway, I've been listening to your podcast from day one, and I love it. I would appreciate if you gave a shout-out to me on one of your shows. You have at least one subscriber in Spain who cares enough to say hi. God bless. Well, uh, here's your shout-out, Luisa, and please keep fighting the fight over there in Spain. I know that, you know, on the, tr on the, on the, on the train into insanity and destruction, we're all on the same track, but I think you guys in Europe, you're just a few... You're a few train cars ahead of us, so we can look over and see what's happening to you, and we know where we're going to be in just a few years. Um, from Luke, he says, Matt, one question. What are your favorite Civil War generals? Well, Luke, I'll give you the best in order. 
starting at five. Five would be Sheridan, four would be Nathan Bedford Forrest, three would be Grant, two would be Robert E. Lee, and number one would be Stonewall Jackson. And I think you could, you could mix around two through five, you can mix and match and move around the order. But number one, I feel very strongly, has to be Stonewall Jackson. Um, I think he did things that no one else could do um, in the war or maybe in any war in American history. He, and, and he did it with this ragtag group of shoeless farm boys. You look at just his Valley campaign alone, where he maneuvered this small force all over the Shenandoah Valley, Valley marching dozens of miles in a single day and methodically picking apart these larger armies, winning battle after battle. It's just a thing of beauty. Um, and uh, just, it was a you know fascinating person and a great uh, military commander. Um, Let's see, I'll do one more. From Joel, he says, Hi, Matt. I thought it was extremely irresponsible to encourage people not to go to college. Often I find your show and you as a person to be hard to stomach and insufferable, but this was the last straw for me. I won't be listening or following anymore. I think your anti-education stance is idiotic and irresponsible even for you. Yes, you got lucky and got to be a blogger for a living, which I'm sure is a fun and easy life, but the rest of us have real jobs and so we need an education. Now that I mention it, why should anyone listen to you now that you've admitted you have no education? Well, hello, Joel. I, uh, first of all, you don't have to listen to me. I give you my blessing to leave. I just ask that before you leave, Joel, please just think of the good times we shared. Don't focus on the bad. Don't focus on the way things ended for us. Just think of the good times. That's all I ask. As far as my lack of education, well, uh, I have made the effort to, to learn things on my own, which... You can do, there are things called books. Um, I've got a few back there. And, and so uh, here's, the, here's the interesting thing that I, I discovered you could do, is you could pick up a book, right? And the book has um, what's called information inside it. And it's written on, it's, there's these things called words on these, this thing called a page, right? And then the words are assembled in such a way as to communicate information. And so what you can do without paying anyone $80,000 is you can just pick up the book and read it and find out the information. It's a really fascinating process you should look into. Um, so I was able to do that. But if you feel that a person cannot really know anything unless they've paid $80,000 to walk in the doors of a building that has the word school written on it, then, um, then again, you have every right to just, um, just ignore me. As far as me being an insufferable idiot, that is a point that I will not dispute. But thanks for watching anyway. And thanks everyone else for watching. We'll leave it there. Godspeed. I'm Michael Knowles, host of The Michael Knowles Show. As the 2020 race heats up to be a battle over whose mother washed more floors for less money, we ask why victimhood became a substitute for virtue. We'll be joined by Peter Bogosian and Jim Lindsay, authors of the infamous Grievance Studies Experiment. Lots more to catch up on after that. Check it out at dailywire.com.